Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. All right, uh, we're going to study. There, we're going to study these next two weeks. Bring us to what I think is like the crescendo and one of the most amazing, uh, to me, in the whole book of Acts. The story that has like the biggest twist in it is coming, um, and we're leading up to that right now. Acts is. We've been studying through the entire book of Acts. We just started it, verse one, chapter one, and we haven't skipped anything. We've come the whole way through. We're up to chapter twenty-one, so we've been in this a good minute. And Acts is, it tells us the historical account of how the news, the, the facts about who Jesus is, what he did, and why it mattered. How that news traveled from the city of Jerusalem at the beginning of the book of Acts. And by the end of the book of Acts, it had made its way all the way across the Middle East, through the Mediterranean part of Europe, all the way to Rome in Italy. And this was before... It was even published in print. This is before that news, before they ever, before Mel Gibson made a movie about it, before there was all of the different advantages we have today for communicating things. It's the story of how that message geographically traveled and what happened as people responded to that message all along the way. And so we're, we're at the three quarters of the way through point here, and Luke has been focusing in on the journeys of Paul. And as we'll learn today, there's a lot of other things God was doing in this story that were happening simultaneously with Paul's mission, but they weren't recorded. And we get a little clue today that there's a whole lot of other stuff that was really good going on. It just didn't make its way into Acts. God was doing even more than the accounts that we read. Up to this point, Paul's been spending a lot of his life as a missionary, as an itinerant missionary. He was traveling by land and by sea to different cities. He really focused in on urban population centers. He would go from city to city, finding a place to tell people about Jesus, giving them an opportunity to respond. And in every city, there was positive and negative responses. But in every city he went to, he was, he was oftentimes the first person in to tell them about who Jesus was. And as people accepted that and believed and repented, they experienced salvation through Jesus and they formed these radical new communities within their culture that were different from every other community. Other communities in the first century was based on your ethnicity. Were you a Jew or were you not a Jew? Were you a Greek? Were you a Gentile? Were you, um, were you a Roman citizen or not? Or it was based on your status. Were you an aristocrat, working class, or a slave? So they were based on ethnicity. They were based on religious views. They were based, based on your wealth or they were based on your societal status. However... Acts shows us that when people were getting saved, everything about their life changed. And they started forming these radical new communities of life-giving friendships and relationships that looked like the best possible family one could imagine. People from every different walk of life, regardless of income, regardless of what their status was, were coming into these communities and relating to each other like brothers and sisters. They were sitting around tables together. They were having friendship and fellowship together. And it was mystifying as the world was watching this. So Paul has given his life up to this part in the story. He's been traveling from city to city to city. He's been pretty much in Mediterranean Europe. 
But around chapter 20, he lets something out that has only been happening privately. But last week we read about a, a very intimate conversation he had with some of his closest friends from the Ephesian church. Paul had started making his way back to Jerusalem, but he stopped in the town of Miletus for a layover. And he sent a messenger 30 miles away to Ephesus and said, will you just go find the elders of the Christian church there? Tell them I'd like them to make the 30-mile walk to just come and meet with me. They were willing to do it. And in that conversation, Paul bears his soul. And he says, I feel compelled by the Holy Spirit. I feel bound by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And I don't know what's ahead for me there, but God has given me a little detail. He's been telling me repeatedly, God's been telling me in city after city after city that my time as a missionary in Europe is just about over and that I'm going to make a dramatic change. I'm going to go to Jerusalem in Israel. And God's showing me that when I get there, danger lies ahead. It's going to be dangerous for me there. In fact, I'm going to be thrown in jail there. And he tells his Ephesian friends, this then this conversation is the last time you'll ever see my face. That was a lot for them to process. I don't know how you would handle being on the other side of a conversation with a dear friend of yours who says, listen, you're never going to see me again. This is the last time we'll ever talk. That's a lot to digest. I don't know how the human heart ever prepares for that. The conversation ended in the exact Greek language there, if you go back, the Bible wasn't originally written in English. It was written in this part of the Bible. The New Testament was written in Greek. The Greek language says, after they had torn themselves apart, Paul got on the boat and left. So let that image resonate in your mind. This is the depth of the relation that we have. So this is kind of what's going on. Luke, the, where we're reading today, Luke is giving you the travel log of how Paul got from boat to boat to boat to boat to boat eventually off of the mission field in Europe and gets the whole way to Jerusalem. And it's a part that if you just read it on the surface, you might skip over it because there's major, there's major action starting next week. It is like action absolutely picks up. But there's some little details here that teach us a valuable lesson. And I want to illustrate to you the necessity of why you should listen in today by showing you a couple pictures. Um, can you put up that first picture? This is a picture of the line outside of Franklin's Barbecue. If you don't know, you don't know, but if you do know, you know what I'm talking about. Um, Franklin's Barbecue is world-renowned. Every day outside their barbecue restaurant is a line this long. People waiting to get the limited finite amount of barbecue that they have. Now let me ask you a question. Let's assume after church today, you and your family drive across the street. You, you've got a hankering for steak and you drive across the street to Texas Roadhouse and you pull in. And when you pull in, you see a line outside at Texas Roadhouse wrapping around the sidewalk. You and everybody in your car sees this. What are you going to do about what you see? Okay, you say turn around. You say go home. You say Bye. I had some people in the first service who said, well, I also might be thinking, I wonder if there's a really good deal in there today. Or now you're thinking Texas Roadhouse. Maybe if it was Franklin, Bar why are those people, those people know what kind of barbecue is in there. And they're saying, there's a line outside the restaurant. Let's wait. 
I don't want to miss a good deal, okay? So sometimes you see the long line, and everybody in your car says, man, that line is long. Let's go somewhere else. Now, my question is, whose food do you think is better, the restaurant with no line or the restaurant with the line down the sidewalk, right? Who knows? Let me show you another picture. Have you ever seen one of these? Now, (laughs) you know where I'm going with this. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. That light is on its way to being red. Some of you in the room see that yellow light and you think, speed up. Got to get through there. Pedal to the metal. (laughs) I'm really worried about this room. I heard a whole that. But there's a car next to you that sees that light and says, I think there's a camera at this light. I better slam on the brakes. You do at least admit that two drivers and two cars moving at the same speed towards the same traffic light can see the same light. And one person says, it's yellow, therefore, speed up. The other one says, it's yellow, therefore, slam on the brakes. You do see that, right? That there's a possibility of you agreeing on what the traffic light is showing, but disagreeing on what you should do in response to it, right? How about this one? You got tickets to the Orioles game, and an hour before you go, you see this on your Never Wrong Weather app. What do you do? What do you say? Go to where? Go to okay. Go to Franklin's instead. I heard take an umbrella. Someone says, uh, "Yeah." Someone says, "I'll just watch it on TV." You realize that how you answer these questions. There's so many different layers of your personality that determine how you answer this. One person might say, "I remember the last time we had tickets to a nose game and the radar looked like this." By the time we got down there, the showers had passed, the crowd stayed home, and I could kind of voluntarily upgrade my seat to wherever I wanted to sit. It was great. We had the whole road to ourselves. Let's just take an umbrella and go again. Another person says, I remember the last time I saw radar like this. We got the whole way down there. It was raining. They canceled the game, and we had already paid for parking. We had to go the whole way home. I'm staying home. Other people say, well, who are they playing tonight? Where are our seats? Are they giving bobbleheads away? You know, how much money do we have invested in these seats? There's a lot of different things that can go into your brain when you're figuring out what to do with the facts you've been given. Some people see the line at the restaurant and say, let's get in line and not miss out. Other people says that line says, go home or eat somewhere else. Some two people see a yellow light. One says that means speed up. The other one says that means slow down. Two people see rain coming to a baseball game. One says, pack an umbrella. The other one says, avoid the storm. It's normal for human beings to be able to look at a set of facts and have different interpretations about how we should apply what we agree that we see. Now, in some of these scenarios, it's not like these are life-changing decisions. I mean, I love barbecue Some people say, well, barbecue changed my life. I'm like, what kind of life do you live? Like that barbecue changed your whole life. These are innocent examples. Now, a yellow light, you could make a decision to run that light and change somebody's life or your own, right? Some of you are like, Pastor, you're trying to trap me because I'm just saying just there is a scenario where you could run a light and get a ticket, you get pulled over, you could hit somebody. Scenario like this, you know, on the surface, you know, the worst that happens is you maybe lose out some money. I want you to know there are going to be times in your life where God reveals to you some facts, some realities. 
And you and the people around you in your circle might see all the same facts. I say, yes, I see this is happening. I can see this is something that God is doing. I can see this is something that God is saying. I see the report. I see the radar. Salvations in America are on the decline. I, I see the stats. I see the temperature. But I disagree on what we should do about it. One person says, well, pastor, if we stop renting at the high school and we start renting another space or we buy it, expenses are going to go way up. Therefore, we shouldn't go. Another one says, pastor, if we stop renting at the high school and we stop renting in a commercial space, expenses are going to go way up, but so will our opportunities for ministry. Therefore, let's prepare and go. And both people could be well-intentioned and convicted. Both people could see realities in front of them. And both people could disagree about whether we should go or stay. What I want to prepare you for is that's going to be an inevitable part of your Christian journey. You're going to spend a lot of your Christian life doing this. What do I think God is talking to me about in my life right now? Is this him? Is this me? Is he talking or is he being quiet? Am I hearing him or am I missing it? Am I, is this half him, half me? You're going to spend a lot of your Christian journey trying to, I'll use the Christian term, discern the voice of God speaking to you. Then the second part is figuring out what to do about what you think he's telling you. Luke invites us into what appears to be a very messy confusing set of circumstances because in this story today, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see Paul saying on multiple occasions, I feel compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem and I feel the Holy Spirit telling me there's going to be danger there and imprisonment there. You're going to see three other groups of Christian people who love God, who love Jesus, who have been converted, who love Paul. You're going to see three different groups of people who say, we agree that danger and imprisonment lies ahead for you in Jerusalem. God has revealed to that to us too. Therefore, don't go. Paul says, danger ahead. God's saying, go. These three groups say, danger ahead. Don't go. What do you do in that circumstance? Let's see what Paul did. Acts chapter 21, after saying farewell to the Ephesian elders, we, now that's an important, we're in the we part of Acts. All that that means, Luke wrote Acts. Last week I asked the first service who wrote Acts and they said Paul. Paul didn't write it. He wrote most of the, a lot of the New Testament, but not this. Luke writes Acts. It is the sequel to the book of Luke. You can read those two together. It's the sequel. It picks up right where his gospel leaves off. Now this part he says we, he's writing in the first person. So that means what? At this part of the story, where is Luke? He's actually there in person. This is not something he had to go do a lot of research on. He was there personally. We sailed straight to the island of Kos. The next day we reached Rhodes and then went to Patara. There we boarded a ship sailing for Phoenicia. We sighted the island of Cyprus, passed it on our left, and landed at the harbor of Tyre in Syria, where the ship was to unload its cargo. What type of a ship was Paul traveling on? Cargo ship, no business class for Paul, no elite class. He's in there with all the cargo. Let's keep reading a couple of verses here. So at Tyre, they're in Tyre, T-Y-R-E, we went ashore. This is a great detail. We found who? The local believers. Now, just make, 
put a placeholder there in your mind. We're going to come back to that sentence. We stayed with them a week. These believers prophesied through the Holy Spirit that Paul should not go on to Jerusalem. So this must have had a deep impact on Paul. Verse 5. When we returned to the ship at the end of the week, well, apparently not a big deep impact on Paul, the entire congregation, including women and children, left the city, came down to the shore with us, there we knelt, we prayed, and we said our farewells. Then we went aboard, and they returned home. We're going to put a map up on the screen. I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I just want to get you a, give you a visual. Paul was in Troas when he started making his way back to Jerusalem. Can you just get a visual on how long of a journey that was? Troas, top left of the screen. He goes from there to Assos to Mytilene, which is where we left him off. I'm sorry, to Mytilene and then to Miletus. Miletus is where we left him off last week. This week, we get an idea of where he sailed. He sailed past Cos, past Rhodes, stopped over at Patara, and then it was a long trip from Patara. That was the longest boat ride he had from Patara to Tyre in Syria. And then Ptolemaeus is where he goes next. We'll end the story today to Caesarea. He'll eventually make it to Jerusalem. You see, this is not just like a short trip. There were no direct flights. This took time, it cost money, it was uncomfortable, and it's not like he had business class and hotels lined up. He literally went into a town with no Airbnb booked, okay? The part of the story that we're at here right now, he stops in Tyre, T-Y-R-E. I will not nerd out about any of the other cities on there. I promise you more economic. There's only so much the human mind can take in. I will tell you that there's some fascinating things you can learn about by digging into where those other geographical landmarks are. Tyre, here's why that, when I was reading through this, here's why that was interesting to me. If you open up a, a concordance, or if you have, probably more likely, probably there's only five of us in the room that own a concordance because you can get it all for free through an app anymore. Concordance is like, um, it's a document that you can type in or, or look up any word in the Bible, and it'll show you that word, and every time that word shows up in the Bible. If you did a search on the city of Tyre and you wanted to see how many times it, Luke had mentioned that city before this, Luke never mentions anything about Tyre before this chapter. We know nothing about it. He doesn't tell us if Paul ever went there, if Barnabas ever went there. He doesn't tell us anything about the city. All we know, though, is when Paul gets off the boat in Tyre, who does he find there? Believers, but what kind of believers? There's one extra word before it. Local believers. In other words, there are people who lived in the city of Tyre that were Christians. And you might think, great, what does that have? To do? Why are we even talking about this? Here's my question for you. How did they become believers in Tyre? If they were believers, they had to do two things at least. They had to, they had to, Thank you. I've said this like 10 times every week. I'm hoping another 10 years we'll get this. What are, what, are, what are the? How do we come into the kingdom of God? We come in through grace, through faith in Jesus. Two things every believer has to do. Here's what it is. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. They repented. They believed. How did they know to do that? Well, so they didn't have the New Testament yet. They were living in it. Someone had to tell them, Paul says in Romans. Who would have had to tell them about Jesus? Who? Another Christian. Well, maybe Paul. But is Paul the only person who was alive at that point qualified to go into that city and tell him about Jesus? Who? Another believer. You know what that means? But we have no report of that. And you're thinking, well, where does Luke tell us what happened to get the gospel of Tyre? He doesn't. 
all we know is that when Paul gets off the boat in Tyre, he finds local believers. You know what that means? Acts is an awesome account, but it's not the complete unabridged account of everything God was doing for those hundred years. God's always up to more than even what you see in here. And there's so many more things that were happening as Christianity expanded that Luke couldn't even include in there. Somewhere along the line, maybe when you get to heaven, if you're interested, you can find out how did the gospel first get to Tyre? Lots of different theories and ideas, but I just think it's cool to see that even above and beyond what, Paul, what Luke is telling you, Luke is telling you that Paul's ministry was awesome, but it wasn't the only ministry going on. Christianity was expanding and it was working and lives were changing. So he gets off the boat entire. What does he do there? He stays with the believers for about a week. And the reason why is he's waiting for the next boat to come through to take him to the next place on the journey. Here's something interesting. These believers prophesied. That's not unusual. That's kind of a normal thing that was going on in the New Testament church. Now, interesting, these believers were not apostles. They were not part of Jesus' inner circle. These were ordinary, average, local believers that through the Holy Spirit had been given a gift of prophecy, which means that the Holy Spirit that lived in them at times would reveal to them in their thoughts and their imagination information that God was aware of supernaturally, that they were not aware of naturally, with the intention of them using that message as communicating that message from God to listeners. Generally, prophecy had to do with things that hadn't happened yet. In other words, this was not people interpreting the news and putting spin on it. This was a message God gave them to share. The Greek language here says these believers received persistent impressions from the Holy Spirit. And their interpretation of those impressions, I believe, was that danger did indeed lie ahead for Paul. And their application of that was saying, God's showing you a yellow light, Paul, therefore don't go. And I want to be just very plain with you this morning. There are two Mutually exclusive ways that people interpret Paul's bent on going to Jerusalem. There's one group that says Paul was disobeying God by going to Jerusalem. And they'll say, all along the way, the Holy Spirit was showing Paul that if he went to Jerusalem, bad things were going to happen. And he disobeyed God. He should have continued his missionary journey in Europe, but he disobeyed God, and then he ran through all the stop signs. There's another group, and I'm in this other group, that says Paul was not disobeying the Holy Spirit at all. Because nowhere in any of these prophecies that we read did the Holy Spirit say, danger ahead, therefore Paul, don't go. The Holy Spirit just kept saying, danger ahead. Danger ahead, danger ahead. It was how people interpreted the yellow light. It was how people interpreted the radar. It was how people interpreted this long line that they see. And they're hearing danger ahead and out of their good intention. If I had a friend that came to me and said, Pastor, I'm going downtown today because I feel passionate about an issue and I'm going to try to get myself arrested in order that I can bring attention to my cause. The human part of me is going to be like, don't do that thing because I don't want you to get arrested. What could happen to you if you get arrested? Blah, blah, blah. I would, you know danger's coming if you do this. My human instinct is to say, don't do it. 
That's not me being a stick in the mud. That's me, I think, being compassionate and trying to look out for somebody. Think about it. They're seeing danger and imprisonment ahead. Paul, you're worth much more in Europe preaching as a free man than you are in jail. Why would you go and do that? They're saying the only reason God could possibly be telling you danger ahead is if he's trying to prevent you from going. But they didn't get through to Paul. Paul felt where Paul agreed with them was that danger was ahead. Where Paul disagreed is on how to interpret what he should do about what God is saying. They're prophesying danger ahead and saying, therefore, don't go. Paul's saying, yes, danger ahead. I'm ready. Let's go. So let's follow this through. It gets muddier. If that's not muddy enough for you, it gets muddier. This little detail um, the whole church obviously didn't get offended by the fact that Paul said, I don't agree with your interpretation, moving on. The whole church congregation, men, women, children, boys and girls, all formed like this non-vehicular motorcade, and they escorted Paul outside the city. That was common. If a guest came to your house from out of town, it was common. Pagans and Christians alike would all get up, and they would literally walk you to the edge of town and see you off. It was just part of courtesy. So everybody did this. However, what's unusual is that as this congregation walked Paul to the town limits, they all knelt down on the beach, and they prayed together, literally with tears streaming down their face. They knelt They prayed, they said their farewells, then they get on the board, then they get aboard, and they return home. Story continues. Let's see what happens next after uh, verse 7. Next stop after leaving Tyre was Ptolemaeus, where we were greeted by the brothers and sisters, which means, you know what else they found in Ptolemaeus? More Christians. Praise God. Christianity was working. Can you imagine what Paul and his, he's not traveling by himself. He's traveling with his missionary friends. He's traveling with the church leaders. Every city they're getting off like, we haven't been in this city yet. And look, there's Christians here. This must be working. All The news about Jesus is getting out, and God's doing it. He's establishing his kingdom. He's forming this new community. They stayed with the brothers and sisters for one day. Now, this is fascinating to me. The next day, they went on to Caesarea, and they stay at the home of who I think is one of the greatest characters in the Bible, a guy named Philip. That's my first name, so that's why I'm saying that. Sarcasm attached. I was making sure you're paying attention with me, and that proves that either you are with me and I'm not funny, or you... (laughs) Home of Philip, he had a nickname, the Evangelist. What a cool nickname to have. Back then, you got nicknames for what you did and what you were about. He was most known for, you know, the Greek word evangelion means to to, uh, to spread the word. He was known about spreading the word about Jesus. Now, we get a little detail. We've met him before in Acts. He was one of the seven men way back in Acts chapter 6 that the church chose to help out in their feeding ministry. Do you remember that story vaguely? Pretend that you do, and I'll think you're you're a Bible scholar. Do you remember the story from Acts 6? Okay, okay. Oh, yeah, 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 that story. That happened in a different city, though. This is Caesarea. Where did the story in Acts chapter 6 take place? That happened in another city. Jerusalem. You remember the map we just saw? Jerusalem and Caesarea are pretty far apart. Well, in the time of Acts chapter 6, Philip was a homeowner with his family in Jerusalem. Something has changed, and now we find Philip. The next time we see him, he's not in Jerusalem anymore. I want you to know back then, people didn't just relocate. Something would have to cause you to relocate, and I want to drill down on that in a second. He is now in Caesarea. He's one of the seven men. He had four unmarried daughters, which means he had a lot of weddings to save up for, right? But he has four unmarried daughters, not apostles, not even men. This was controversial. And guess what? They had, each of them had the gift of prophecy. 
Now, isn't it interesting that here's Paul. He stays in a house. There's literally four prophets in the house, like four subas, right? There's four subas in the house who all talk to Jesus all the time. You know, and like, man, God is setting him up. Now, it's also interesting. They weren't apostles, but they had given them the gift of prophecy. There is a school of thought that says spiritual gifts were only for apostles and only for a period of time. And I've studied deep into that thinking, and I, and I see where some of those conclusions are drawn. But then there's all these exceptions that there's not good answers for, like, what about these four? What about the believers in Tyre? What about Agabus, who we'll meet in a second? None of them were apostles. Well, we have the New Testament canon now. We don't need those gifts anymore. Well, the New Testament canon didn't come to replace the spiritual gifts. The New Testament canon, though, helps us to refine and test those gifts to make sure they're in alignment with the word. But here you have four unmarried daughters who all have the gift of prophecy. So if you see a pattern here, Paul goes into town, find believers, and God gives them a gift of prophecy to confirm that danger is ahead. If you're guessing, you're like, okay, God's going to use these four girls to do it again. But there's a twist in the story. Verse 10, several days later, a man named Agabus, we've met him before too, He also had the gift of prophecy, and he arrived from Judea. And somehow this dude, God sends him from Judea to Caesarea to find Paul. He came over, and now he does something. This is just weird, and I can't get any way around it. First of all, Agabus comes up to Paul and takes his belt. That's just weird. Don't ever do that to me. I love you. You love me. Don't ever come up to me. Just don't do that. That's just cringy. It's weird. Don't, awkward, inappropriate, don't do that. Well, Agabus does this. Everybody sees Agabus do this. And then he does something that I guess maybe Houdini could do. He bound his own feet and hands with it. How do you do that? Maybe, how do I tie my own hands and feet up? I don't know how you do that. I would need a helper to do that. He does it. Then he says, he's very dramatic. This guy's extra drama. The Holy Spirit declares, so shall the owner of this belt, whoever it might be. You see, he's being extra. Everybody in the room knows whose belt it is. The owner of this belt will be bound by Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and turned over to the Gentiles. Now, there's something interesting here that would be better saved for when we teach through 1 Corinthians, but I'll just mention it here. It's important to see that God doesn't bypass human personalities when, we're, when a human being is trying to take something they feel God's saying it to them and communicating it to them. We can all see the same picture that God's drawing, and you know what? We may all use different words to describe it. Now, all of those words could be consistent. They all could be accurate, but yet they could be unique and different. One person says it in a poem. One person says it's kind of, they use an analogy. One person, Agabus... The Lord prepares Agabus that Paul is going to Jerusalem and he's going to be bound and he's going to be prisoned. Release that prophetic word to Paul. He says, okay. And rather than going in the room and saying, listen, Paul, I know we've never met, but I just want to let you know that God sent me here from Judea to just affirm to you that in Jerusalem, you're going to be bound. Agabus thinks I'm going to be like an Old Testament prophet who acted these things out. I was a little strange. I'm going to go into the room, take Paul's belt, tie up my hands and said, whoever's belt this is, God is showing me that this is going to happen to you in Jerusalem. Now, what if Paul would have been like, well, joke's on you. That's Timothy's belt. I borrowed it yesterday because it went better with this cloak. You know, like Timothy's, sorry, but that's not what happens. Is it wrong for him to be dramatic? No, it's just a little extra. It was just his way of interpreting things. Now, before I go to verse 12. I do need to just stop and point something out real quick. I spent too long on this first service, so I'll just mention this quickly. Who's 
home are they in when Agabus comes to town? Who's home? Philip the evangelist, right? Where was Philip's hometown in Acts chapter 6? Jerusalem. Now think with me. In Jerusalem, he was a Jewish Christian. What would have caused Philip to have to leave Jerusalem with his family and find a new hometown and start all over again? The persecution of the church, exactly. Who was responsible for overseeing the persecution of the church? Who comes back into Philip's life 15, 20 years later looking for a place to stay? Do you think it was a little awkward? Have you ever put this together before? There's a beautiful part of this story. You don't think that Philip was aware that all of the pain and the suffering that was inflicted on his family and having to relocate, all the people who he saw beaten and in prison, they all knew who was responsible for it. They all knew it was Paul. God brings Paul back into Philip's life as he gets off of a boat, not as an adversary, but as a brother. I don't know what conversation went on between the two of them. But isn't it beautiful to see that even the most hopelessly marred and broken relationships can be rebuilt when Jesus enters the equation? I'm sure there's somebody in your life. I shouldn't say I'm sure. It's possible in a room of this size that you could put yourself in the position of Philip and say there was somebody, there is somebody in my life who's caused me such hurt, such pain, such damage, unprovoked, undeserved. And because of that, It's not even that I wouldn't be open to a reconciliation. It's just not even possible unless that person has a change of heart. I want you to notice, I just want you to read this story and hold out a little bit of hope for that person. As long as that person's still living, there's still the possibility that God can meet them on their own Damascus road, show them the error of their way, and have such a dramatic change in heart that God can not only forgive them, and make it possible for restoration. This was not a home of confrontation and conflict. Philip extended such forgiveness and compassion to welcome him in as a brother, have him in his own home. And Paul was humble enough to walk back into that environment as a brother. I just think it's a beautiful picture of the possibility of how Jesus can fix even the relationships that seem the most frayed, the most destroyed, because Paul came back having had a softening experience with the Holy Spirit. And God restored that relationship. And it becomes a scene, it becomes a scene of yet this other scene. So we've had three different groups of, we've, we've had two different confirming words and different ideas. What happens? Agabus comes, does this Houdini act of the belt and the prophecy. What happens as a result of that? Verse 12, I've got to hurry on and finish. When we heard this, oh, there's the we word again. When we heard this. So that means when Luke when the traveling pastors and when all the household of Philip and the local believers in Caesarea, when we all heard this, both we and the local believers all begged Paul not to go on. Now, if I were Paul, I'd be looking, local believers, I could get it. I'd be looking at my traveling companions and be like, listen, you heard this in Troas and Miletus and the Middle and everywhere we've been, every time someone said to us like, you shouldn't, you shouldn't go. You've all been on board with me to go. And now all of a sudden you see Joker come down and tie his hands up with the belt and you say, Paul, you know, let's call it off. Something at this point, I don't know if Luke and everybody else along with them finally are like, maybe, 
if God keeps reminding us that dangers had maybe he's trying to get something through to us and maybe we should shift our allegiance to the don't go party let me ask you this those of you that understand anything about paul does he seem to be like a wishy-washy kind of a guy does he impress you as someone who changes his mind every day Does he impress you as someone who's easily dissuaded from doing something he's convinced he should do? He's pretty headstrong, isn't he? Isn't he? Okay, just making sure you're still here. I I don't know a lot of times. I'm not sure, so I ask for your help. If anybody in the world could have persuaded Paul to change his plans, don't you think it would have been found somewhere in Philip's living room? Priscilla, Aquila, Timothy, Silas, Luke, Philip the Evangelist, four prophets, Agabus and his traveling magician thing that he was doing. Don't you think that if there was anybody on the face of the earth at that time that could have told Paul, Paul, listen, you're interpreting this wrong. Don't you think the person he would have listened to would have been in that room? Have you been in a place where you've been so convinced you should do something that even the closest counsel that you got that was telling you otherwise, you wouldn't receive it because you knew God had told you? That's where he's at right now. Here's what he says, verse 13. Why all this weeping? You're breaking my heart. Now he says something that I would interpret as crazy, reckless talk. I'm a pastor. I also, by virtue of being a counselor at some, or pastor, at sometimes have to give people and get to give people counsel. There's certain things I listen for to clue me into as to someone's mental state. Listen to what he says next. I'm ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, I'm ready even to die for the sake of Jesus. Now, if I'm your buddy, I'm like, okay, Paul, that's not rational. You have some kind of a death wish. You're saying, I know I could possibly die, and you're also saying, if that's what it means, bring it on. Paul, I, did you sleep okay last night? Are you off your meds? Do you need like, all the different things I'd be going through? Like, this guy does not sound mentally stable. That sounds counterintuitive. That sounds the opposite of what someone's human psyche would conclude to, and that's one of the hallmarks of when the Holy Spirit speaks to you. He will many times talk to you about doing something that you're not planning to do. He may talk to you about stopping something you have no plans to stop. He may talk to you about changing something you have no plans to change. He may talk to you about increasing or decreasing something you have no plans to adjust. That's why we need him to help us. Paul understands In his heart, and I'll show you in just a second, this is not what my heart imagined to do. I did not concoct the idea of leaving the mission field to go to Jerusalem and face imprisonment and suffering, but I feel bound by the Spirit to do it. I feel compelled by the Spirit to do it. Therefore, I'm going to trust my own confidence in hearing God's voice to me enough that even if other people who love me are well-intentioned but amiss and trying to talk me out of it, I will stay 
the course. That's called maturity. Why do you think God doesn't answer your prayers about your future in as much detail as you'd like? Probably because we're not mature enough to hear it and go anyway. Would you have done everything you've done in life for the Lord if you knew what it would cost to do it? Probably not. Sometimes you look back over your shoulder. Haven't you ever looked back over your shoulder and said, I'm thankful God didn't tell me in advance what I was getting myself into because I would have said no. Paul is that mature that God can trust him with that level of detail, knowing that he'll go anyway, which is amazing to me. He said, why are you breaking my heart? I'm ready to, not only to be jailed, he doesn't have his head in the sand. He's not saying, you know what, guys, God's going to work it all out. I'm not going to be, he's saying, nope, I'm going to be jailed and I might even die. I'm ready to do it for the sake of the Lord. Verse 14 is awesome. So practical. I love when Luke does not tie these things up in a neat little bow. He just says what it was. When it was clear, we couldn't persuade him. We gave up. That's wisdom. Sometimes you just know when to give up. Pastor, that's a terrible Christian message. We're supposed to push. No, some, there are some battles not worth winning, and there's some battles not worth fighting. You need, like, look, at the end of the day, I don't care where the couch goes. If it makes you happy, go for it, right? We gave up. But why did they give up? They said, the Lord's will be done. In other words, they said, here's what they said. We all are hearing the same thing from God. We disagree on how to apply it, but at the end of the day, we're going to just lay it at the feet of the Lord and trust him to do his will. What a healthy way for them to kind of land this whole lesson. And I'm out of time, so let me give you just the application points real quick. What do, what do we do? What do we do with this? What do you do when you encounter this? When you run into a situation, when you run into a situation where you're saying, I feel very strongly this is what uh, God is. Actually, let me go back. Let me go back. I'll hit these ones other to make more sense. I know what I just did to the tech team. You were following with me, which is awesome. Can you go back to the groupings of verses, the, the slides that'll have the, here's the three things that Paul said. You got it. Here's the conflicting report that Paul got. Three different times in Acts, here's what we see. I just put them all together. There's three different times Paul felt the Holy Spirit saying, go. Paul felt compelled. Now, the only reason you'd need to feel compelled to do something is when that something you're supposed to do is not a natural impetus of your heart. I was so proud that I used the word impetus at the 9 a.m. service. I'm like, I'm going to use it again, and then I'll put it away. When your heart doesn't already feel like you should do something, when it's not the natural direction you're going in, but you recognize another voice that's different than yours saying, do it. He says, I feel compelled by the Spirit to go to Macedonia, and then Achaia, and then to Jerusalem. So Paul starts in chapter 19 saying, The Holy Spirit's redirecting me. Chapter 20, Paul says, I'm bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. He doesn't say, I'm looking forward and hop, skipping, jumping. He's saying, I feel bound to go. I'm bound by this commitment. The only time I would use that language is if I say, you know what? I don't really want to go to the beach with my boys, but I'm bound by a promise I made that they've written in blood that August this date to this date, I'm going to go lug a whole bunch of things out of the car down to the beach. And as soon as it gets there, they're going to be ready to go home. I'm going to lug it back. I don't really want to do it, but I'm bound by my commitment to do it. Paul says, I'm bound by the spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me, except the Holy Spirit is telling me in each city after city. I was just saying, every place that I've been traveling, he's been telling me a jail and suffering lie ahead. Then the third time, he says, I'm not only ready to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Here's what Paul's saying. I'm hearing the Holy Spirit say, danger ahead, danger ahead, danger ahead. Therefore, go, but be prepared. 
Now, here's the conflicting report. Three groups of people who tell Paul, don't go. The believers in Tyre said through the Holy Spirit, you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. God's told us danger ahead, and therefore, don't go. Verse 21, or Acts 21, 12, when we heard Agabus's prophecy, we begged him not to go. Well, Agabus's prophecy never said the owner of this belt should not go to Jerusalem. Agabus's prophecy was that there's danger ahead in Jerusalem. Sometimes we humans add more onto God's word and put our own spin on it, and we go a step farther than where we should. Now, can I just suggest this to you? Do you think Paul knows how it feels when the Holy Spirit is telling him, don't go to that city? Think. Has God ever told Paul, I know you want to go into that city, but don't go? Yes, we studied it here twice. Remember, whoa, I did that in the first service. Twice. Don't you remember back at the second missionary journey? Two times Luke says, we wanted to go into this city, but the Holy Spirit prevented us from going. Then we wanted to go into another city, and the Holy Spirit prevented us from going, and we had to stop in a third city to pray about what we should do. Here's what I want to suggest to you. The longer you walk with Jesus, it's just like the longer you walk in a relationship. Your ability to understand what people are communicating gets better because you base it on experience. Paul has had two documented experiences in his life where he wanted to go somewhere and the Holy Spirit said, don't go. I would suggest to you, Paul's pretty experienced at recognizing the don't go face and voice of the Holy Spirit and this feels different to him. Okay, so he has this confidence. So what do you do? You're gonna spend most of your Christian journey trying to figure out what is God saying to me and what should I do about it? Let me help you with just some basic things here. Uh, now we can go to the last one. God loves to communicate to you in a variety of ways. I'm going to give you four. I'm not going to preach them. You can just, you've heard me say these before. Well, how, how do I know? What your pastor talked about hearing from God. How do I do that? Well, you have to learn how he communicates. If you're in a marriage, you better learn how your spouse communicates. And you also need to learn sometimes how even what they might say might not be exactly how it sounds. It, that's a whole other message on Mars and Venus and blue and red and um, I need to take that class more than I need to teach that class. But let's go back to God. There's different methods God communicates. Here's one, his word. Well, I've never heard God speak to me. I just sat outside in silence in nature and heard nothing. Okay, well, if you're not hearing God from his creation, here's a whole bunch of things God's saying to you. Every time you open up this book before you read a word, if you'll just pause for a moment and say, Holy Spirit, Help me hear my father's voice and help me understand what this is saying to me today. He will speak to you. You mean out loud, audibly? Well, God preferred to speak audibly to people who didn't have his spirit inside of them. In the New Testament, the spirit lives inside of us. You hear less God. If he ever could speak out loud, he still can speak out loud. But you know, he used to do that to people who didn't have him living inside. He likes to speak to us intimately. And a lot of times that happens through your thoughts. And you have to learn to recognize the difference between the Holy Spirit in your thoughts and your thing in your thoughts. And before I go way too deep down to the psychological course, you're thinking, well, how do I figure that out? Practice. Practice. Experience. You get better. You're going to miss it sometimes. You're going to mess up. And God is gracious. And he's persistent and consistent and infallible. And he'll help you. He speaks to us through his word. Another way he speaks is through his spirit. Now, where is God's Holy Spirit? Where is he? Carrie, come every week. 
I, I know you have a new baby at home, but listen, thank you for coming to the 11 o'clock service. Yes, he's inside you. He's not just out there somewhere. I used to ask people, where's the Holy Spirit? They'd point over here and they'd point over there. They'd, I saw him in a cloud the other day. It just turned in the form of, well, yeah, he's there. God's Spirit is within every one of his children. He lives in you. You're the new temple. He lives in the, the center of you. And he's speaking to you. And he talks to us from within you. God can and does communicate to you and to me through his Holy Spirit. Number three, God can also communicate to us through his messengers. Here's the thing I need to point out here because I'm out of time. I need to drill down on this. Yes, at times, God can speak to you through other people. Sometimes those other people know God is speaking to you through them. A lot of times, they may not even know that they're speaking to you through them. But I want to help you on something. Make sure every, understand, even the best well-intentioned messenger of God is still a human. And as a result of that, we are subject to flaws. Sometimes you can get the message right and the tone wrong. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's, there's what you say and how you say it. And when you get into an argument with somebody, both of those things are weighted differently. There's the content and the presentation. Every time it's from God, it will align with his word. It will be consistent with his word. It will not contain error or mistakes. How, but I know that there's a lot of people who would prefer to get all of their word from God through messengers. You know why? It's easier. Someone else does all the work, they speak it out, and you just take it. How can you possibly know if they're telling you the truth if you never read his word? How can you possibly know if what I'm teaching you is accurate if you don't weigh it against the Bible? How can you possibly know whether what you're hearing is something you should take in and run with unless you are also growing and hearing God through his word and spirit? This is how large groups of churches and believers are deceived and they take in false teaching is because they just sit there and gobble up when anybody feeds them. They don't challenge it. They're not Bereans. I'm thankful that in this family, that's not how it goes. I'm thankful that in this family, even after services, somebody caught me in the hallway and said, I have a question about the four unmarried daughters and why God did. Well, he had four prophets in that house. Why do you have to send somebody from out of town? And I said, well, my conclusion is, I guess God just wants to speak in ways we don't even expect. And she said, yeah, I can see that. But could it also have been that maybe that group would have heard it better from a man than from four girls? And I was like, I never even thought about that. That's kind of icky. I don't want to voice that out loud. But there were some real issues there. You know what? It was someone who was thinking critically through the message. Yes, God is speaking through a messenger. But everything that I teach should align with God's word. And if it doesn't, God's word isn't the problem. The messenger's the problem. Are you following me? There's a fourth, there's a fourth way he speaks. He speaks through his creation. I don't have time to unpack that one. But here's what we do with it. Paul was trying to figure out what is the Holy Spirit saying to me and what should I do about it? My question to you is what has the Holy Spirit been talking to you about lately? I think most of you probably have an answer to that. What's he been talking to you about? Well, he's pretty much been talking to me about I've been controlling the topic lately. Okay, how has he been responding to what you've been talking to him about? I will tell you as you mature in your walk with Jesus, you'll find the way your prayers are weighted. I, listen, when we first start coming to God, most of our prayers are weighted very heavily. God, here's what I need. Here's what I want. Here's where I need your help. Nothing wrong with that. That's good. What you'll find is the longer you walk with God, some of those things start to settle down. And you start coming to God saying, God, what's on your heart today? Talk to me about that. Holy Spirit, what do you see 
in my world, in my life right now. Talk to me about that. And it just moves in a different way. How do I know when God, how do I know? I'll give you a few things. When it's the Holy Spirit and not your own mind, he will be persistent. Five different times that we know of, the Holy Spirit showed Paul in his own life, in his own dreams, in his own prayers. He sends Agabus. He sends the, the believer's entire prophecy. He is saying the same thing over and over again, danger ahead, danger ahead, danger ahead, danger ahead. When the Holy Spirit's speaking to you, it's not always gonna be danger ahead, but we usually desist and dissolve our own whims after a while. You think, you know, I need to buy a motorcycle. I need to change this. I need a new hairstyle. You think about that, I don't. I have no options. It's you, you when it's just a whim, you get hot on it for a while and then it moves on to something else. When it's the Holy Spirit, he is persistent. That means he repeats, he repeats, he repeats. Second thing about the Holy Spirit, he will be consistent. Has God been saying the same thing to you over and over and over again? It's the same thing. Here's what you'll never experience with the Holy Spirit. You'll never have a moment where when you get up in the morning and you're on your second cup of coffee, the Holy Spirit just, let, just comes to you and says something that sounds like this. You know, uh, you, you know, friend, Angie, we had a board meeting up in heaven today. The three of us had a, had a team meeting this morning. And we would like, you know that thing we told you yesterday? Could you scratch that? We were talking about it. We, we've changed our mind. He's going to be consistent. We're not consistent. We can change minds, opinions, hairstyles, fashion, political parties, stands. We're not models of consistency. But one of the ways you can recognize the Holy Spirit is he will say the same thing the same way repeatedly over and over again. Biblical reference, the story of Samuel, the little boy Samuel. Remember the story? Samuel, he gets up. Eli, what do you want? I didn't wake you up. Go back to bed. He hears his voice again. Sam, this story repeats itself. He keeps hearing a voice that he doesn't know is God. He gets it wrong, and yet God doesn't write him off because he missed it. God is persistent and consistent until he gets it. If you want to really hear from God, he will honor your best effort, even if you miss him. Did you get that? None of you did. Number three, all right. He will remain infallible. Infallible means incapable of making a mistake. The Holy Spirit is not capable of messing up. It's not just that he is able to will himself from not making a mistake. He can't make a mistake. So if someone says they have a word for you from God and it contains incorrect detail, it's probably not a word from God. I've told you the story a million times of the person in church who felt they had a word from God that they wanted to encourage the congregation with, came up, took the microphone and said, I feel the Lord saying that just as he was with Moses on the ark, so he will be with each and every one of you. Did Moses get on the ark? <laughs> Human error, right? Gets back up five minutes later. Thus saith the Lord, I was mistaken. It was actually, no. well, what was the mistake? Thus saith the Lord, I was mistaken. Here is a human being who made a human error in giving a word of encouragement and rather than owning it, off put the blame on an infallible God. The Holy Spirit is infallible. And number four is the most reassuring one to me. When, the, when God speaks you to the Holy Spirit, he will help you interpret what to do with what he's telling you. Paul was so convinced, you know, I, well, I should never write a commentary. That would, be, that would be a bad idea. 
I don't have nearly the education or the pedigree. But one thing I search, sometimes I get these little ideas that I'm like, before I share that, let me dig through all these old dusty books and find some corroborating evidence to see if I'm barking up the right tree or not. Couldn't find any corroborating evidence for this. So just take this as a for whatever it's worth, and then we'll pray. I've often wondered, and when we talked through it, I talked to you about it, why when Paul was so eager to go into a new city and tell people about Jesus, why would the Holy Spirit prevent him from doing it? That makes no sense. The hardest thing for most pastors to do is convince people in their churches to go tell somebody about Jesus. It's one of the hardest things we do. It's easier to get people to sign up to hand out balloons or paint faces. Or, but if I just say, hey, we're going to get together and go talk to people about Jesus, no gimmicks, whatever, that's, that's hard. But at the end of the day, when we think about the finish line, like what would be really good fruit in our congregation to get every man, woman, boy, and girl to the place where they're so confident in their own relationship with Jesus, they're so familiar with the truth of the gospel that they are eager and willing witnesses for Jesus throughout the course of life. I think, man, if you can tip that switch, there's no stopping the church. Who cares at that point how many people show up on a Sunday? If the people in your congregation love Jesus, have a hunger for Jesus, they're growing in their relationship, and they're getting into conversations with unbelievers about Jesus all the time, wherever he takes them, that is the center of God's kingdom. The hardest thing we do is trying to convince you to do the work of the ministry, not just watch somebody else do it. And I'm thinking, here you've got a guy in Paul who says, I'll go into that city, whether they jail me or imprison me. I'll go, and I'm planning to go, and it's a good thing, and God says, don't go to the city and evangelize. And I've wondered, why did you have these encounters with Paul where you let him experience what it felt like for the Holy Spirit to prevent him from something? One of my theories was, even in that moment, he was preparing Paul for this moment. He wanted him to know the difference between stay and go. Because a lot of times in your Christian walk, a boulder will drop in the middle of your life, and you're going to say this question. Did that boulder drop there because God wants me to abandon this course and go do something else, or did he drop that boulder there for me to pick up a jackhammer and go right through it? Experience teaches you that. And I have to wonder, in the grand scheme of God's things, what I've learned from this chapter is that even though he didn't send Paul into some of these cities, Jesus was going into those cities through other people. And secondly, Paul had to know what no felt like, so he knew what go felt like. So where are you at today? Worship team, when you come back, where are you at today? What's the Holy Spirit been talking to you about lately? Worship team, okay, here they come. What's the Holy Spirit been talking to you about lately? Anything? We haven't been talking about much. Okay, my assignment to you this week is talk to him and listen to him. Holy Spirit's not an it, he's a he. He loves you, he's in you. What does he want to talk about? Whatever you care about or whatever he cares about. The Holy Spirit will not talk to you about things that neither you nor he care about. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Talk to him about the things you care about, the people you care about, the things that cause you anxiety, the things that bring you joy, the things you're unsure of. Talk to him about it. Listen to him. How do I listen to him? You listen to him through his spirit while you pray. You listen to him while you read your word. You listen to him while you're having conversations with other believers. Well, what do I do with all of it? You ask him to help you to interpret what to do with what you hear. It's that easy? It's that easy. Will he help me? His nickname is the helper, says Jesus. 
He's the parakletos, the one who comes along beside you. I will tell you, most of your Christian journey will involve you trying to figure out what is God saying to me and what should I do about what I think he's telling me. As a pastor, if I can inspire in you a hunger to improve your confidence that you know you've heard from God and to increase the rate or the pace at which you respond obediently to what you hear, that would bring such fulfillment and satisfaction to my heart. But the only way you get there is practice. Practice, 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 practice. Practice listening. Practice practice processing and thinking through. Be available to hear from him. So that when you're in a place like Paul where you know you've heard from God and even though you might get conflicting counsel on what to do, your heart will be confident in responding in obedience to God the way he wants you to because you've walked those miles together with you in the Holy Spirit. Let me pray over you this morning. If you're in this place today and you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus but you want to have one, this is your moment. We had a moment earlier. We'll have a second moment right now. If you're ready to have a relationship with God through Jesus, here's what I want to encourage you to do right now. In your own words, if you believe in your heart that Jesus can save you, that he will save you, that you need to be saved, and you're ready to turn from living your way and turn to the Lord's way, I'm not asking you to join this church. I'm not asking you to fill out an application. I'm not asking you to give an offering. I'm inviting you into God's kingdom to save you. The benefits package is unbelievable. New identity, hope, for an eternity in heaven. Old person buried, new person alive again. If you're ready for that, I want to encourage you right now, right where you're seated, just tell Jesus in your own words that that's what you want. Just tell him. He'll listen. It doesn't have to be a perfect prayer. Just honest from your heart. Pastor, can you help me be more specific? Sure. Jesus, save me. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, I turn to you because you're the Lord. Jesus, come live in me through your Holy Spirit. Jesus, teach me, grow me, help me. If you pray those words and you mean them, he hears them, he's saving you right now. You don't have to do another thing. The Bible says all of heaven rejoices when even one lost person is restored to relationship with God through Jesus. So I don't have to do, and you don't have to do anything else beyond that prayer you just whispered to Jesus. But I ask. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.